Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, a horror video game podcast and proud member of Bloody Disgusting's Bloody FM Podcast Network. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Ball. And it's the beginning of the end, folks. That is the beginning of our end-of-the-year coverage. Sorry for the theatrics, but it's been a crazy last few weeks, days, and hours prepping for our Game of the Year coverage, which we're breaking up into two episodes this year, given our uh, habit of talking at length about the genre that we both love so dearly. This week, we'll be covering our number 10 through number 6 games of the year from our respective lists, which, as is customary here, we have not shared with one another ahead of time. We'll be going one by one through our picks, and if one of us mentions a title that's on the other's list before they've had a chance to mention it, we'll pause that particular discussion and move on to the other person's next pick and continue along our merry way. We'll also be sprinkling in a few personal awards for best of categories, best soundtrack, best atmosphere, and so forth. Uh, But Neil, how was your last week uh, prepping for game of the year time? (laughs) Well, uh, my attempts at catch up this week have not been very good um as uh midnight suns uh, landed and you know being the phyrexis node i am meant that that's taken up most of my week so um so yes i didn't get around to playing a few games i wanted to sort of mop up so uh, you know the usual disclaimer if it didn't appear it's because i didn't like it or i didn't play it there you go. <laughs> and uh um but yes it's I mean that's not strictly true because there's just so many games. That, that is the main thing we're taking away there. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, I sort of went back, looked at reviews and articles I'd done on certain things that I really knew that I was into from this year. Looked at certain things, you know, to give them a reappraisal. You know, that were hovering around. Which should they be in the top ten? Shouldn't they be? And there's this whole internal discussion of like, is it horror enough? Isn't it horror enough? I went back and listened to our mid-year episode and guess what? Had that same <laughs> mid-debate at the beginning of that episode as well. And you know, same thing goes, who cares? It's my choice. <laughs> and that, and it, But um, it, you can't help but think that all the same because you're looking at all these games and going, well, I want to include that. I want to include this. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, but if you didn't like it enough to put in your top 10 you know, good as it may be, you've got to accept that. Well, I mean, we are going to save our you know, honorary mentions uh, until just before our number ones, uh, so we don't spoil anything early on. You know, and you can wait a week to rage about anything we didn't pick. So. <laughs> so. We might have to cap our honorable mentions at like ten themselves, right? Because I think yeah. when you start to think about the entire year, and you know whether it be. Indie titles, whether it be these massive AAA things that have kind of come in at the last, uh, at the the 12th hour, if you will, in terms of uh, coverage season. It is the type of thing, though, where there's so many games that you want to mention, even if yeah. they don't necessarily make your top 10, to say that this year, much like, you know, the one that came before it, wasn't filled with a variety of stellar quality horror titles um, would, you know, not be an accurate representation of just, you know, how inundated we are with titles that have, you know, been going above and beyond, not only just, you know, their scariness and whatnot, which is a factor of horror that we so rarely highlight just because there's so much more to horror games. And, you know, that is very much the, uh, you know, the cherry on top when they manage to scare the shit out of us. Um, And, you know, the last week of myself playing catch up and whatnot and, you know, taking a, a backseat to maybe like, certain social events and whatnot to me catching up on games and everything. It's just kind of yeah. been like, Oh Jay, how's your week going? It's like, Oh yeah, I can't come out for beers. Like I got to play 
a couple of games and they're like, oh, it sounds so difficult. Like that kind of thing uh, has been a conversation I've had several times this week where people just like can't wrap their brains about it. But even for people that are so tuned in, like we are with horror releases and everything like that, it's impossible to play everything. And especially when some of these games are, you know, not the general eight to 10 hour fare, but 15, 20, 30, in some cases like 50. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, so, uh, you know, I will say it. Apologies in advance to Martha is dead. Madison, uh, I didn't get round to you. And the quarry, you were the second best supermassive game and <laughs> you didn't get in. So um, just get those out of the way now so you don't go expecting them. <laughs> those are all games that you and I have discussed and, you know, we don't have anything yeah. uh, written in stone yet, but those are games that we are planning on covering in the new year more than likely. Uh, we've had, you know, a couple of people reach out interested in chatting about those games in particular. And I would say there's definitely going to be some we mentioned today that perhaps were featured or even in next week's episode were briefly mentioned perhaps in other episodes, mm. but didn't get a full episode dedicated to them. This same rings true with, you know, the uh, honorable mentions, which will be coming in next week's episode. Who's to say we won't dive into some of those for a full episode with a guest and whatnot. So nothing's off the table. You and I are pretty, uh, you know, pretty confident in our own lists in the sense that like don't really care if people disagree with them so long as you know we're going to uh defend them and hopefully do them right and justify them being on the list but at the same time like this is not a space where we're going to be arguing the <laughs> numerical order of things you know that's something that you and i have never been interested in and uh in general it's like at the end of the day there are lists right and yeah i mean it just happens to come on a week where twitter's had one of its moments for me where someone tried to horror horror explain what <laughs> what horror is about a horror game which was left for dead and apparently it's not a horror game just because it's got zombies in it it's like no well, it's because it's a survival game <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like it's like yeah it, uh, it, it was an odd one it's like oh christ really it's like you know pick a fight in the right lane uh, you know it's like <laughs> if you're gonna go for it but yeah that, that was fresh in my mind thinking about this and thinking I understand that some people have a very clear idea of what they think horror is. That's fine. Just don't tell me that it's not horror just because, you know, you have that clear idea. Horror can be for everything and everyone and all sorts and ways and different things scare different people. And it's not always about being scared. Absolutely. But I think with that, we'll dive into uh, your number 10 game of the year. My number 10 right out the gate is not. You know, going to be in that mold it is Elden Ring by From Software, um, yeah, which featured I think at the halfway point as well. Um, absolutely love this game. You know, I put so so many hours into it. Probably after Sekiro, which really pushed me back into liking these games again. After just sort of being bludgeoned over the head with uh, reviewing two and three of the Dark Souls games, it was. Yeah, nice to really be into things again. And there's just so much weird and freaky and horror-led shit in this game that you just discover by accident. And it is generally unsettling in its own right. you know. And I think that's the important thing to note here is that it really does just throw that strange, oddball, horror-led stuff at you a lot without, you know, there's loads of undead soldiers on a base level, you know, there's weird creatures that live underground. There's just all sorts of fucked up nasties, which, um, you know, in an open world environment for the first time as well, just means you can discover these things 
all sorts of you know times compared to someone else someone else could come in and never see the thing you see you know which is really quite astounding for that game it's yeah go on the open world aspect of it it makes this the most appealing souls title for me in a Mm. number of years right granted i'm not the biggest souls guy to begin with you know dark souls games i kind of bounced off of um bloodborne was the one and you know we chatted about it with uh aaron earlier in the year at least i think it was this year maybe it was last year but um (laughs) but it is the type of thing where you know i really leaned into the more gothic horror aesthetic of that game and elden ring continuing with that more gothic horror kind of atmosphere or rather uh, aesthetic and its monsters and its creatures but applying it to an open world was really appealing to me because that was always my one thing with the souls games where i was like well if i hit this wall yeah. you know there's multiple paths in an area but you really have to you know progress through this sort of linear path if you will to progress and with this being an open world it appeals to somebody like me that is not necessarily like the most hardcore gamer, however you want to put it, right? It's like I bounce off of things that are too difficult pretty quickly. And having enough breathing room to be like, well, maybe I'll just go explore something over here or over there for a while and then come back. Um, And it really being that type of a game where, okay, if I go over there and go on my own random little adventure, who's to say I won't discover some kind of mini story or something that, you know, further fleshes out the world but at the same time, my character is getting stronger and stronger, so I can go back and then, you know, face whatever boss I was kind of hitting a wall on. Um, and to hear and see that that has been, you know, such a successful transition into that open world really makes me excited to, you know, dive into Elden Ring a little bit more, especially, you know, during the holiday break and whatnot. Spoilers, it's not on my list just because I hadn't spent enough time with it uh, to really, you know, form an opinion past sort of my opening five hours with it or so. Um, But I will say, you know, as somebody that is not the biggest Souls fan, Elden Ring feels right up my alley in a way that, uh, you know, makes that genre exciting for somebody like me that, again, is not the biggest fan of it. And I think that when you're continuing along with a certain ethos, right, you've got Souls and then Bloodborne and then Elden Ring – there is that connectivity tissue between them and to see it grow while not abandoning the past identity that really did make souls as popular mm. as, it, as it is, um, is really refreshing to see. It's nice to see devs not get too carried away or drink their own Kool-Aid and do something that just feels completely foreign to what yeah. they've done previously. And yet it's still be able to be exciting and refreshing and I'm sure terrifying in some instances, uh, that, you know, is what, you would want from a continuation of that. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the qualities of From Software's titles in recent years has been that they just feel far bigger than the player, you know, in terms of, yes, there are stories and, you know, lore behind it all, but you don't really feel like you get a grasp on it, which is, you know, you would be a criticism in a lot of games, but I think it really helps um, games like this because you don't feel right in that world in a sense it just feels like everything's against you which is perfect for the kind of world you're in and yeah it's nice to just have this different facet of it where you are able to conjure up your own personal stories a bit more you know it really marries well to the what they had already established with this their games so yeah you know as a game in itself a brilliant game up there with the best in terms of that as a horror title, it has plenty going for it. So, you know, fairly low down on my top 10 for this, 
but you know it is a fantastic title so um how about you what's your number 10 my number 10 is going to be the mortuary assistant just missed out just missed out on my list so oh i'm sure it was one of your honorable mentions uh but the mortuary assistant was developed by darkstone digital published by the folks over at dread xp um and for people that don't know this one puts the player through their paces as i'm sure you've all guessed a mortuary assistant uh, that's stuck on the night shift on their lonesome. Um, so in addition to, you know, doing the <laughs> what kind of is uh, the morbid work of preparing bodies for embalming and whatnot, and there is a real hands-on simulator feel to those aspects of embalming yeah. bodies and whatnot, which takes up a good portion of, uh, you know, the experience where you have to, you know, pick up certain medical equipment or items, and then you have to begin to, you know, mark on the body where you see certain like birthmarks or different things and, you know, jot down notes, file it into a computer and then, you know, get into the nitty gritty of mortuary work, which is things like, it's pretty gruesome stuff to describe, but bear with me. Mm. Uh, you know, like, you know, making incisions, draining fluids, uh, you know, sealing up bodies again, and then, you know, putting them back in their, uh, their cooling home back in the back of the, uh, morgue. But, there are, of course, lots and lots of hauntings that are going on at the same time. There's a story tied into this, which is not overbearing, but at the same time, it adds a little more depth to the experience. It's not just a blatant sort of simulator in that sense where it's like you just do this job and that's you know the few hours of an experience that it mm-hmm. is. There is a narrative that ties into the protagonist and the world in this particular profession um, that adds a little more depth and investment into it because you are going to hit a wall after a certain point of, you know, doing going through the routine of, you know, preparing the bodies and whatnot. But the horror aspect of this game comes in at the right moments, seemingly always, no matter which shift you're on, and that it recycles or rather it cycles the scares in a way that no one shift feels like the last one in a lot of ways, just in terms of like what you can expect. Chances are, no matter what shift you're on, there's going to be a few scares that kind of pop up. You know, there might be some that you remember or something along those lines. But at the same time, every time I played through this, there was something new that kind of like threw me a curveball or put me on edge as if it was my first shift. Um, And yeah, the level of depth that's here, um, whether it be just the simulator aspect or the kind of ways in which the haunting of the morgue becomes more and more personal, the closer to discovering the demon and then going through this sort of like ritual to expound the demon from the body uh, of one of the morgue patients was, uh, yeah, really chilling, terrifying and engaging in a way that I honestly wasn't expecting. I thought it was going to be the type of thing where I was like, I'll play this for an hour. I'll get to show some buddies about, you know, the grotesque nature of the embalming process and things or you know, get them to jump with some of those uh, well-timed jump scares. And I'll say this for the scares, you know, there are a good amount that are jump scares, but they're done in a way that is more about utilizing the atmosphere rather than, you know, just shoving something in the player's face and, you know, getting them to have a reaction, but it not really lingering much. Um, I'll say the scares and the atmosphere and the environment really all do complement themselves in a way that made this, you know, one of the, I would say, scariest titles I played this year. Did you uh, spend much time with the Mortuary Assistant? Yeah, I did. I mean, I, one of the uh, perks of writing for Dread XP is that you tend to get given the keys for the game. So, that, you know, that, that was uh, one of the many. And 
getting to play them, of course, is the other problem. Right? You cover <laughs> so, so much on a weekly basis. Yeah. I forget what you've covered and what you haven't. <laughs> yeah, so I don't tend to write about them as a result because, you know, not so much conflict of interest, but you know, it's like I can't really take PC games anywhere else that easily, right. personally. But yeah, um, but yeah, this is one that I was very intrigued by the idea of it anyway, because of the it has uh, a very clear sort of connection to the film. I forgot the name of the film now. Autopsy Agenda. That's the one. There's those bunch of films that all have similarish titles. Yeah. <laughs> Is it that one? The Possession of the Blood of this, whatever. But yeah, the Autopsy of Jane Doe is the first thing you think of. And think, okay, that that could work as a game. That's cool. But it very much you know, does its own thing, which I think is important. Because I think if it had been more story-led, possibly not as memorable. I think, yeah, I think putting you through the paces of doing these routine, you know, the mundane and grim job that is, you know, working in an archery and you know, the other side of it, which is basically doing all these rituals and incantations and such to dispel these demonic presences. And just the way the game mucks around with that and messes with you and that it is really smartly done for, you know, a very, 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 very small team. So it's a great use of uh, minimal space. You know, you know, you generally are in this one area, you know, there's one building. You get to know it like the back of your hand in some ways, but obviously you get those curveballs thrown at you. And yeah, I think from the off, you know, it really just, just put you in the mood for what it is, you know, that here you are in this building on a dark and stormy night sort of thing. And <laughs> Like that, and early on you get that little first whisper of another voice, and you know, hinting at what you're going to get coming. And I must say, I, I didn't really expect it to go the way it did, you know, which is good, I think, because you do just suddenly expect it to be very much story focused. Get through this, done, like that, you know, which it has an aspect of, but it is, you know, very much about different types of things and variations. I, I could see how that might, you know put some people off you know who are looking for something that's really story focused but i think if you want that you that that film is there for that kind of thing you know this is very much trying to do something that works within a video game format um of course the interesting thing now is to see how you know with that getting a the rights to a a film adaptation being made uh we we will see how it works the other way around so that that will be interesting but um yeah it's a really really great experience you know and i think especially those opening few hours are just some of the the, the top horror moments i think i've encountered all year yeah it's definitely one that uh, i think definitely exceeded my expectations um it was something that you know i heard was following some coverage on online and all these things and people talking about it and saw a couple of screen grabs and i was like i'm sure that's great for like an hour right because then it's like how well can you really recycle these mechanics, the scares and whatnot. And like you had said, it's probably a testament to why the game is not only enjoyable, but also replayable in the fact that the story is there and it provides a good framework for everything. And it does, you know, throw you the odd curveball here and there, but it really isn't the main drive of the story. It's not following this very linear nature, which if it were, it's probably a game I would play one or two, you know, quote unquote shifts and then not touch again. But it was one that I came back to several times because there was enough variation to, you know, keep me involved in it. 
Um, but enough about uh, playing around with dead bodies. What was your <laughs> number nine pick? My number nine pick is Mothman 1966, which is by LCB Game Studio. Um, this is a game that evokes the visuals of a home computer game from the 80s. Um, so you have limited color palette. In this case, it's uh, all greens and blues and whites and, bl- and black sort of thing. Um, don't drag me up on black and whites and colors and you know, in terms of being monochromes. I know, I know. Uh, but yeah, that, that's the basic color scheme. You have those two colors and the monochromes. Um, it's a choose your own adventure style game you know, with multiple choices and certain conversations and actions. Um, it's got a great story, I think, uh, for what it is. Um, it's supposed to be the first of a planned series of interactive adventures called Pixel Pops, which are inspired by mid-20th century pulp fiction, not the film. Um, so it has a very B-movie atmosphere to this. It's paranormal and cryptid sort of focused. Um, so it follows three characters. Sorry, a notification just came up in the middle of my screen. Um in 1966, America, during the, the uh, Leonid meteor shower. There's a gas station owner called Holt, who's got this fixation with Civil War weaponry. There's this young man, Lee, who's trying to do better than his father whilst out on a date with his girlfriend, Victoria, who is fretting about their future and you know the news that she may have for him that could change their lives. And it's a special night for all these people, and something strange happens on this night that uh, causes their lives to intersect. And, you know, things go very wrong and weird and strange. So, yeah, going back to that thing about it being like a choose-your-own-adventure, there's a lot of that. You know, with pictures of them, you go flip between characters and chapters, so you'll see a bit from one perspective then to the other. Um, So it has some of that very 50s sort of, 60s sort of paranoia and conspiracy and, you know, like about UFOs and, like, the paranormal and things you might... You know, the great American legends and uh, of that era. Um, but it also takes it out of that occasionally and does little side things. Not the first game this year. I've seen that and certainly not the last, but it does stuff like um, choreographing a siege, you know, where you are basically presented with like very basic, you know, choose this direction, this direction or this direction. And, you know, pick which one you think is best to tackle first. And then if you don't, obviously, you fail, that sort of thing. Um, and there's a twist on solitaire in the, within the game that's, um, it's quite funny because it's given these sort of personal level of, uh, interaction with the characters who are playing it. And, you know, the disdain that one character in particular puts to beating you so easily. Um, and I, I really do like that this, these personal stories are just um, interwoven with the paranormal quite effortlessly. Uh, it was written by a novelist anyway, who who is uh, very much into this sort of thing. And I think, what's the name? Uh, Nico Saratanaris, I think is the name. Uh, again, pronunciation is uh, not a strong suit. <laughs> That's how I would have pronounced it. So we can be yes. wrong together. That's it. Um when you do get to see creatures in this, you know, a lot of it is drawn from very classic ideals like the Mothmen themselves that come up. Um, you know, it's very you know, black, you know, bird-like shapes and the red eyes and still really effective when it, when they come up. Um, it, it literally can be completed in like an hour and a half, I think, at uh, best. 
really interesting start to a series. I hope to see more from it. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's varied enough as the short time it goes on and distinct enough in what it's doing that this is one of those that I came back to late in the year and, you know, looking at this list I was making and thinking, I really did like that. I really do want to talk about it more. And the more I thought about it, it's like, yeah, for something that really just came out of nowhere, you know, I just did, you know, for work and just happened to say, yeah, that looks okay, interesting. And then finding something great about it without no preamble, no hype, whatever, I was, it stuck with me. So, yeah, and I think it's um one of those very underserved sort of things out there in terms of horror gaming that, uh, yeah, please do go out and, and seek this one out because I think it is a absolute gem. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, Steam page for while you've been talking about it. And yeah, I love the aesthetic of it, right? It's kind of got this almost uh, sort of like Game Gear aesthetic with the limited color palette and all that, but it is highly detailed still and just, you know, making that world pop in a way that um, it looks almost as, uh, you know, supernatural as I'm sure that, you know, the the cryptid side of things like path that it goes down. Um, but also just the idea that you would take something that, you know, if you're looking at just the storefront page, you'd be like, well, yeah, it's about monsters and, you know, figuring out the mystery behind them. But I love to hear that it's more about the characters and their personal narratives and how everything's interwoven, which then, you know, granted, it sounds yeah. like a pretty short experience, but it sounds like from a narrative standpoint, it takes a lot of various, you know, experiences and kind of goes through these arcs in a way that kind of sounds well-rounded um, and doesn't just focus on, you know, the monster side of things, but also focuses on the human side of things, which, you know, the older I get, I'm more in favor of stories like that, taking this fucked up, horrifying situation and then telling human stories in it that are grounded in somewhat some form of reality, even if, you know, at the end of the day, the main conceit is there's a bunch of winged creatures with glowing eyes and whatnot that you're trying to get to the bottom of. But yeah, that sounds like one that I'll be adding to my Steam list now. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. So tell me about your number nine. So my number nine is The Shopping List, which was one of our horror bites for the year. We said we were going to be open to including them if we found that a specific horror bite you know, was notable enough. And I found that the shopping list from developer Jordy Boy uh, definitely fit that bill. Uh, this was an experience that you know we detailed last week, but at the same time, I think it's an experience that is so well-rounded and not only tells such a strong narrative, but also a deeply personal narrative, it seems, from such a young developer, right? I think we had yeah. said we looked into it. It's like a middle school student or something that made this yeah. or even or early high school student. And, you know, the, the ability to not only show your, you know, ability to develop a game itself, have multiple features in it, but also to tell a story and have yeah. all of those elements complement one another. Um, and, you know, for those that didn't listen to last week's episode, the shopping list is about the player moving to a new town for a new beginning. But upon arriving and interacting with the unsettling and eccentric locals, uh, there's more to the town and its inhabitants than they knew when they were moving there. Uh, again, a perfect example of a game that begins with the mundane. You go to the store, you make the rounds, you've you know, you've got to furnish your place, you got to get groceries and this and that. And the way in which it's paced, it just builds and builds and builds and builds just like you know a horror movie would. Um, but there's also this great sense of humor in it. There's also, you know, really dark 
and again, deeply personal narrative going on about things like identity and all of these different elements that, again, is storytelling at a level that you wouldn't you would expect from somebody more seasoned. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that as a compliment, right? Well, I think this is fantastic. This is still a game that is from somebody that is very early on in their career. And yet it is, you know, indicative of somebody that not only understands games, but understands that you can use games to be a vessel for something perhaps yeah. more than just interactivity. Um, I think also something that this game deserves credit for, and, you know, when I detail it, it's going to sound simplistic, but again, you got to keep in mind that this is somebody very early in their career. I found that this game throughout it has brief sections that feel almost like tech demos or or reasons for the developer to experiment with fundamentals of gameplay that, again, yeah. simplistic things like a flashlight, using a, a camera to take pictures of things in the game, brief puzzle solving. These are all stock standard features. But again, the way in which the game layers these different features and incorporates them into the world without it feeling like just like kind of slamming on the brakes and being like, look what I can do with this game. The way in which all these features are presented feels very... Um, I suppose, just organic in the sense of where the story is at at a given moment. Um, It complements the environment, it complements the storytelling, and it just shows that this is somebody that I think, and we both agreed, has a bright future in game Mm -hmm. development. Absolutely, yeah. As you said last week, it is doing a lot for, you know, largely one person with some help here and there to uh, make something feel as natural compared to things around it. Yeah, uh, and there's a youthful flippancy to to a lot of what's going on in there. You know, doing those arbitrary things that are there are often peppered with these moments of absurdity, absurd <laughs> silliness that work so well that even in his follow up game as well, that there was a a lot of that. You know, some really stupid, silly moments that just delight you if, if you're into that. And yeah, naturally we are. I saw people that are into that, so it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's a very strong standout in terms of like a short and punchy horror game experience. You know, it's it sits on the longer side for some of the stuff we played for horror bites, but I think it's so it but it's also shorter than probably even the shortest experience on the other side. So it sits at a very comfortable position to feel something out of it that is just beyond oh yeah that was fine five minutes you know um but yeah it, it it's a really good game you know i think it's uh geordie boy has made some interesting stuff already so i'm hoping this this is uh not the first and only year that we uh end up featuring him in the end of the chart years yeah and i'll say that you know i guess to i hate to say justify including a horror bite in my overall game of the year list but when I was looking through the list of not only our Horror Bites of the Year and then my Game of the Year list, I was looking at you know that time distinction, right? It's a little, about an hour, perhaps a little bit longer than an hour for shopping list. And I was thinking, you know, how much is cram-packed into this hour-long give-or-take experience and how you leave it feeling satisfied in multiple ways? And then thinking about how it utilizes that time period or that time distinction yeah. In a way that, you know, I'm not going to compare it to five to 10 hour AAA titles, but just generally speaking with these shorter experiences, and there have been plenty of games we've covered that have been 60 to 90, perhaps two hours long. 
I found the shopping list utilized that time frame the best. And it included not only, you know, really strong gameplay features, but again, I keep coming back to that narrative that yeah. uh, it it's difficult to tell. And, you know, it's always an example of like the best and most realized media. When somebody tells a personable story, it comes across exactly how you would imagine that they want it to. We've yeah. seen a, lots of examples, I think, over the years of people that have tried to do something similar, but for one reason or another, their experience, whether or not you can relate to it or not, doesn't translate in the same way. Yeah. And I found that the shopping list was a really, really strong example of somebody telling something personable that anybody that sits down to play this, how could you not begin to understand what that experience is like, whether or not yeah. you, know, you can relate to it. It's still the type of thing that uh, I think as a storyteller – Gameplay aside, like that's a strong talent there to be able to do that. Absolutely. I mean, it's, um, you, you look at the four games we've had so far and how varied they are in length, um, production value. Um, and you know, it, it, there's so many different variations on a theme, but they all have something about them that, that, that are connected to us. So, yeah, we, we've done well so far, I think. But uh, let's do our first category award, and then I think we'll take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, then we'll dive into more of our list. But for you, Neil, what was the best soundtrack of the year for you? In terms of horror, we might add as well to say. In terms of horror. <laughs> as obvious as that should be on a podcast where we talk about horror games. But <laughs> um, all the same, this was really hard. I love a good soundtrack, you know, and... Two this year have very much inspired me to go, yeah, I need to buy copies of these. So I'm going to pick two because, you know, who, it's our awards and whatever. So um, the first one is Norco's soundtrack uh, by Gugali. The first, I think, is how you put it, um, which has this just drony, dready scuzziness to it. You know, this southern gothic game as it is with this future tech sort of dystopian vibe going on and you feel it in the soundtrack it, it the soundtrack stinks of it you know it, it just has something grimy and industrial about it and i just love it you know i think it has been the soundtrack new soundtrack i've listened to the most this year like i, I worked to that soundtrack for a week solid i think because <laughs> it was just perfect Mood music, probably not like for improving my mood, but you know, <laughs> it was good. good for writing. Um, the other is going to be relevant in a minute, uh, which is, uh, Olivier de Rivier's, uh, A Plague Tale Requiem soundtrack. Yeah. You know, I love the composer anyway. Um, and yeah, again, I bought this the second it came out, uh, as a soundtrack because I just, it's, not yeah, you know, Spotify has these things, you know, sometimes when you can't get access to them, which is great. But this version, you know, had every single little track, you know, so it was like a bumper chock full of loads little bits and pieces, you know. They sometimes when you get a soundtrack, you know, and you want to listen to it separately, it's missing something, you know. Or it's like, Where's that track I like that was that bit with the and this has every little thing in it and it's just I love, you know, that it picks up the period piece nature of it all, you know, and has this sort of medieval sort of feeling to it with the instruments and yeah, just yeah, you know, the um, you know how the music escalates in that game anyway. We had these sort of 
all the strings and things going on and the violin stuff and the hurdy-gurdy mm-hmm. style bits and oh yeah I, I really just adored where that soundtrack went and the doomy music that comes when the rats come out and all that and just music that is connects itself with the things you are seeing really do just make for the most magical moments in games for me I even, even a terrible game can be improved by a soundtrack that really just hits the beat of what it's trying to do and these are two of the best examples of the year for me you know there there are others but absolutely but these two were just like "Mm, chef's kiss brilliant love them how about you well before i give you mine um i'll say you know music that is tied to a specific moment in a game or a specific event but is still able to be enjoyed removed from actually playing the game and you know listening to it like you said while you're working or writing or this or that I think that those are the best soundtracks out there. And I would agree, you know, that is definitely a standout. And I'm somebody that personally, not wild about a lot of fantasy kind of scores or music for me personally, it kind of just all drones together (laughs) after a certain point. I will say though, especially with, you know, Innocence and uh, what I've played of Plagues or what I've played of Requiem, you know, that score kind of picks up where the previous one left off in a big way. Um, And yeah, but for me, and I just picked the second one because uh, I want to stay consistent here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) My first soundtrack of the year, which was the soundtrack I'd listened to probably the most while I was working would be Immortality from the Nita Desai. And that is not only a fantastic score to listen to while you're working, but it also, I found it to be one that is really standout because of its ability to match various points of the game and, you know, how there are tracks in that that they return to, but are altered based on, you know, how you're interacting with the film, Mm. how you're interacting with specific time periods and whatnot. And, you know, I'm somebody that is absolutely blown away by the fact that she was able to score basically three different time periods worth of music to match those films that it pops up in. I am not musically inclined. I'm, uh, I've <laughs> considered myself to be musically illit- illiterate to a certain point. But, you know, if somebody like myself that's not especially well-versed in discussing music or understanding, you know, what goes into making music, uh, whether it be for games or otherwise, it's just such an overwhelming score on one side because of, you know, what kinds of uh, emotions it's able to elicit. But at the same time, it's able to reflect different multitudes of the gameplay experience with that. Um, And that was something that, you know, I was floored by. And like you said, with uh, one of your picks, I mean, this was my go-to soundtrack basically for when I was working, just throwing that on and whatnot. Um, But also, and I will note, I was fortunate enough to also interview Nanita Desai for uh, the podcast, which if you go back uh, and listen to, you'll get to hear that. But my other soundtrack of the year was Proteus by Andrew Holschel, mm. um, which you know kind of picked up the reins of what Mick Gordon did with Doom 2016, but is able to take it and apply it to this you know pixelated throwback boomer shooter um, in a way that felt like it was channeling some elements of like 16-bit gameplay from back in the day, but has yeah. this very modern uh, modern synthesizer kind of uh, chaotic nature to it that builds and ramps in a really, really nice way to the degree that when you're playing the game, it feels like it's kicking in just at the right moment every single time. You know, you're letting that chain gun rip and the music just kicks off and just builds and builds and builds and then has that kind of crescendo moment that really does complement what you're doing. And it makes this 
really nice sort of just uh, meat grinder mentality to, you know, chewing through the hordes and having a soundtrack that, you know, accompanies that kind of just heightens the endorphins during those moments. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those two are definitely up there for me as well. And uh, uh, going back to Derivier, um, you know, Dying Light 2 soundtrack as well was just, you know, brilliant. And that I, I just had to bring up quickly just because I think it was a really good example of a soundtrack that, you know, shifts and change depending on what you're doing more. Um, you know, in the, like the faster you run and the more intense the action, the, the more the soundtrack will change and to match it. And it's a really underrated aspect of that game. And I think it really does just add to chase scenes when you really are in the thick of it. Um, I, it helps if you, you can kind of get used to the game's parkour and really get in the flow of things to really appreciate that soundtrack in the way it's supposed to be. But he, another example of why he's, you know, one of my favorite composers out there. Yeah, it's, um, he brings some really fresh and interesting ideas to every project he does. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, he had two shots this year and he was definitely going to be up there one way or the other, I think. So, yeah, but the immortality is almost feels like something I imagined happened, you know, in terms of that soundtrack. It's just, it feels otherworldly. You know, despite having those three distinct sounds. Which I think not only complements the ethos of what immortality, mm. the experience of playing immortality is, but at the same time, again, it's that idea that it's music that complements gameplay and whatnot and just the investigatory aspects of that. And yet you can still enjoy it removed from the experience of actually playing the game. Um, but, you know, I think it's uh, it's indicative from our first you know, mini award to break up our games of the year that uh, we have a lot of honorable <laughs> mentions that we got to get out of our system just to, you know, highlight those. Cause you know, there's, again, it's the nature yeah. of lists, right? You can only have so much on there, but at the same time, we're fighting that urge to just, you know, spread the gospel about so many different, whether it's games or elements of games that really stood out to us this year. But yeah. uh, I think before we continue with our lists, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll dive into your number eight. And we are back from our break. And Neil, let's dive into your eighth pick. Yeah, well, we just mentioned the game. And uh, he's a Plague Tale Requiem, um, which, uh, you know, I had the fortunate thing of reviewing that. Um, put simply, everything I wanted from a sequel to A Plague Tale Innocence, you know, a game that I was very fond of to begin with. And yeah, the greatest thing about this is that it expands... Not only, you know, the mechanics of it all, where it starts to feel like, you know, the double A version of a, a triple A version game, you know, in, in so many ways, but it has that distinct personality and style of a company that isn't quite swept away with following a, um, a corporate vision sounds a bit rude to some games, but of that highest tier, but it is, you know, Fundamentally, it's like, we know this works, this works, this works, and this works. Let's make sure they're all in the game and then production values out the wazoo. And this is more about pushing as far as you can go. you know. And the way that Sobo, you know, who are famous for pushing things, you know, as far as they can go, you know, and did so with Innocence as well, you know, they compromised perhaps on what you could do in that game by and then giving you this more you know, technically polished, you know, visually pleasing game uh, with a great story, and this really pushes that to a whole other level. And you know, 
the rats have always been like the most intriguing aspect of this to me anyway because as discussed before i have a real fascination with the idea of killer rats and whatever but the story they add to that you know here and, and the grimness and the constant fight against it you know in this world is just something haunting and terrifying in its own right and towards the end of this game it just gets into weird fucked up territory that is you know of places you would think the game goes it you know you wouldn't start to think that it would remind you of things like bloodborne and aliens you know in terms of where where it goes with the place the places you visit but it's to me a better way of telling the story of you know trying to avoid violence and conflict in a world and but not being able to help it because nothing is ever as simple as that than say the last of us part two where it's very much you know about the selfish side of that in like because you didn't deal with your own personal history and emotions here i like the method of you want to be good for someone to show them there is good in the world but everything that comes at you is designed almost to stop you from being that person and it gets easy to lose hope and to the tragedy of the the story is basically that it will lead you down that path where you've basically been trained to end this story the way it has to end and that's just yeah it's such a captivating end to this game when that happens and i just really love the journey that these characters go on I, i i'm so happy to see them get this game that I said when we covered it before, you know, it feels like part two and three in one. Like they really just thought, you know, look, it might be our last shot. We may never get to tell the whole story of this, uh, these siblings ever again, if we don't get it all done now. And they did. And they just pushed it. So they pushed it in terms of what they had in the game, you know, the mechanics, the story, the scope of it. It's, it's a mind blowing achievement. And you really sit down and think about it. And sure, that probably wouldn't be enough for those that are very much sticklers for those games that are you know the highest performing and look the best and all this stuff. But I'd much rather have a game like this that is aiming for that whilst doing the good stuff underneath as well. You know that that makes it its own thing, makes it daring, makes it interesting. Sure, mechanically, it's like many games of its type. But I think the story changes a lot of that dynamic you know, because you are playing as a young girl and constantly protecting younger people than you and having to go up against people bigger and older, more cynical and meaner than you, you know, in a way that Ellie doesn't really do in The Last of Us, you know, in the same way that it's there. It's accepted that the world has to be like that because everyone's desperate to survive here. It's just people like it because they're cruel and mean and that's it. You know, that's it. It's not. It's all about self-interest, and the world hasn't quite gone to shit yet. You know, and, and the result is that by being pushed upon in that way, they are making the world worse. You know, instead, of, you know, when they could have just left it all alone and, and made it better. It's a game I probably will never tire talking about because I, I just absolutely adore it in so many ways. You know, I think it's a really strong follow-up to the original. Well, I find that it's 
really indicative of just Sobo and them being as invested in this story as they are that they are going this route where it's, you know, the world is so much bigger. They have more of a backing behind them for the sequel based off the reception of the original game. And, you know, of course, it's on next gen. So the game looks gorgeous from start to finish. And yet the characters don't get lost in that bigger and better mentality approach to a sequel, right? Despite all of the things that we've that you've mentioned, right? The characters, it sounds like, are still the central drive of the experience. And from what I played, that was absolutely the case, right? It wasn't this thing where it was like, yeah, these are the people that you remember from the last game. And then they almost become an afterthought almost or just a repeat of their previous journey. As you said, these are still characters that are growing in this world that has not completely gone to shit, which makes the world and the people within it, for me, more interesting, right? Because as you said, it's more about people seizing an opportunity rather than it being this type of thing that it's like, well, their behavior is symptomatic of the fact that this world is now in a post-apocalyptic, you know, rat-infested world. Um, More so, the fact that, you know, I've joked numerous times, and it's a bad joke if I have to make it more than once, about the rat (laughs) tornadoes, right, with the rats and all of that thing. But the idea that in the sequel, they can still be just as menacing and terrifying of an antagonist and not just sort of like a joke almost or like memefied to a degree that they lose an ounce of their sinisterness, that in and of itself, I find to just be, you know, smart handling of it. I'm thinking back to my first few hours and it takes a little while for the rats to even be reintroduced, right? You could see them being too eager and just leading with them right out of the gate. But if anything, that would, I find, compromise the human aspect of that game, whether it's, you know, Amicia and Hugo and their tale, the other inhabitants of the world. Um, it really does allow this world to foster characters in it that are multidimensional, that are, you know, you sort of have a little bit of a morality aspect to this one, right? I think with that knife mechanic where it's like, periodically you can kill people and make it easier for yourself, but how does the world view those actions that you're committing, which I haven't played enough to see if that, you know, comes out into being more central to the story and narrative and progression. But I think from those early uh, early hours of the game, aspects such as that, um, you know, having Hugo or somebody comment on the fact I just knifed the guy, that introduces an interesting wrinkle, this idea of, you know, kids coming up in this traumatic world and how that's going to shape them into hopefully not the people that they're coming up against, but you kind of see through their eyes how easy it might be to get swept up in that, you know, this is the way things are now, which, you know, you don't want to see them uh, kind of fall down that rabbit hole, but perhaps they may. Um, But also, you know, I think, as you mentioned earlier, like the score, absolutely fantastic. It matches every beat of this that I've played really spectacularly so, and it's gorgeous to look at. It's one of those games that, and I so rarely do this, but literally just like put the controller down, I'll check my phone just so I can listen to the score at the same time, also just like admiring the landscape or something like that. Um, really a tremendous effort. And to hear that they really like shot their shot with this and went, okay, we're not only going to do the second game in the series, but also like the third. That just makes me even more excited to kind of dive back in so I can see that kind of character arc and transitions for myself. Yeah, I mean, I strangely find there are actually a lot of parallels you know, with it going for aiming for that AAA space on a lower end, it it and God, God of War Ragnarok feel very much like the same kind of sequel in a lot of ways, especially on a narrative level, you know, but um, obviously one game is basically just refining what it did the last time. 
in terms of its gameplay and this is sort of jumping you know to a whole new level of stuff you know and uh learning that way so you know it's a more distinct jump but you know i think um if you get around to playing both it is there are some very interesting parallels i think as much as i keep pointing out something like the last of us and part two i think maybe that is also a companion piece you know in terms of trying to think of how to approach violence and um not have it feel exhausting like yeah but you're going to bring it to me anyway sort of thing like i think there's a way to deal with it you know where you can say oh you know this world is violent and you are going to be morally challenged by that but at the same time you have to be accepting that the violence is part of this world and i think it works so much better in a place where it isn't really post-apocalyptic all the time it's just that there are cruel people out there you know and i think that's the thing that been used as a crutch in um, many games is that the idea is oh yeah fine you know the world has ended so of course everyone's out for themselves sort of thing when the truth of it is you know that was always there and and the world at its worst shows that and you know this is the world at its worst whilst you know humanity is technically still fine and thriving for the most part so and yeah in a way it's a nice sort of tale of that and the idea that you are just bringing about your own downfall by you know how you act with people and how you react to people and uh, how you use your power in this world and that in itself is a uh, you know timely you know as it always should be but um yeah it, it's a game that's just worked on so many levels for me yeah um don't uh take its eighth place on this list to mean anything derogatory of it it's just there are lots of games I like. <laughs> it, it made the cut, and that, yeah. I think, in and of itself means that any game that shows up on either one of our top tens, in addition, I'll note, to honorable mentions, mm. that means right out the gate, don't even think about it. You should be People should be diving into these games. Uh, people have a tendency to get a little too caught up in the numbers sometimes, but yeah. this is a game of the year list. A number 10, I would recommend with the same vigor as I would a number one. Uh, you know, enthusiasm, rather, I'll say. Yeah. Uh, just because, again, you know, we play so much every year and it's like, kind of doing all that down to 10 games. It's yeah. not an easy feat. So, how about you, number eight? My number eight is Metal Hellsinger. Uh, from developer The Outsiders and published by Funcom. This is one I came to late. But uh, it became apparent within the first, like, 90 seconds of playing this game that this was right up my alley. Uh, and for those that don't know, Metal Hellsinger is a rhythmic first-person shooter that feels influenced by the likes of Beat Saber by way of Doom 2016. Uh, as you play a demon known as the Unknown, who must fight through hell to regain her stolen voice from the ruler of hell. Um, and what follows is a trip through nine levels of hell utilizing an array of fairly standard first-person shooter weaponry. However, the ways in which the player utilizes them is notably different. Um, while you can deal damage in the normal way that you would with a first-person shooter, when you sync up your attacks to the beat of the heavy metals track that's playing per level, you end up dealing a significant, significantly more damage. Mm. Um, and so it, that is the sort of rhythmic beat aspect of the game. If you're able to, you know, get into the fray of combat, stick with the beat, and you can plow through enemies in a way that, you know, on the harder difficulties, it's still going to be, you know, very difficult. But at the same time, if you kind of just try to run and gun your way through this without much strategy, 
you're going to be in a bad way pretty quickly. Um, I think that this game excels in a way that, you know, I played so many great first-person shooters this year. This was the first one that I found kind of pushed the envelope in what you can expect from a first-person shooter Hmm. um, in the sense that it really does tie in this musical aspect, the rhythm aspect into the gameplay. And yet the inclusion of that new rhythmic aspect doesn't hamper the overall experience, right? Sometimes I think when developers try to, you know, push a specific genre or subgenre in a new direction, sometimes that new direction can hamper the integrity of that foundation of what they're trying to build upon. Hmm. With Metal Hellsinger, I found, you know, maybe it takes five or 10 minutes to kind of get a handle on the beat, staying on track, and then, you know, having to manipulate the environment and whatnot and dealing with this onslaught of enemies. And periodically you will fall off beat, but you're still dealing damage throughout the game. So, you know, you're going to have these moments where you get into a gunfight, you get overwhelmed, you kind of just start spraying and praying to get out of an engagement. But then once you regroup, you can kind of then, you know, get back on beat and start dealing Mm -hmm. out damage in a way that hits this really, really nice sort of fluidity between environmental traversal, combat, and again, you know, the music, which I'm a huge metal fan. And this was by a group called Two Feathers, who did all of the music for this game. And that was a strategic decision, not only because if they're using, you know, in-house music, it's going to be cheaper, but also all of the tracks that are in this game are multi-layered. Mm-hmm. So when you start dealing a lot of damage, you're building up a fury meter, right? Which basically just means you're going to unleash a devastating special attack based on whatever weapon you're using. And the music is layered. So that way, when you start to increase the meter and you've stayed on beat, the music actually begins to add more instrumentals to it. So the music ratchets up just as the intensity of combat ratchets up. And, you know, that made for countless fights where I was just like, in the zone to a degree that, you know, you would attribute to being like, oh, I'm hitting all the notes in Guitar Hero or Rock Band or whatever, Mm -hmm. except it's in my favorite genre, a first-person shooter. And, you know, I love metal music. So that all really complements itself for this pulse-pounding experience that even when you stumble and you get off beat, you're not completely in the weeds and it's easy to kind of regroup and utilize um, a good array of weapons. Again, it's stuff that's fairly standard, but at the same time, when you're tying in this rhythmic element, it just makes for a really nice groove you can find yourself in, and it makes every combat instance exhilarating, um, yeah. I found. Did you uh, ever get a chance to play this one? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm a sucker for anything that implements music in an inventive way. And you know, my only problem with that being, you know, as I've discussed before, being half-deaf means I have to listen to things like that under a certain condition when i used to play stuff like rock band you know i had to have headphones if i could you know which mm. was not always easy with the older older consoles yeah um to get going or i had to have it really loud and when once you have kids that's just not doable right um so you know i fell off my love for that a bit um so i went into games like fuser or you know um Beat Saber, even you know, where you can add a bit of novelty to it. Um, but I always want to play games like this where I can, so uh, my time hasn't been as long as I'd hoped with it. But when I have got to play it under those optimal conditions, you know, I love the rhythm of it because it, that's the problem. You know, if I can't, if anything's outside distraction, throws me off the rhythm completely. 
fucked, can't do it like that. And then it just becomes an unpleasant experience, which is not ever the fault of the game when it's like this. Um, yeah, I, I love the idea of this. You know, I think, you know, marrying it to this escalating set of metal tracks, you know, with you know, a bunch of famous singers and that coming in to sort of add to it when you get to that top level, like Serge Dynamic and of uh, System of a Down, it really just gives you this sort of feeling of accomplishment when you do get to that level of things going on where it's like, wow, yeah, I really must be doing good because I'm hearing every bit and aspect of it. You know, again, you were saying before, you know, it's like, I, I'm not a music nerd in that sense. I don't really understand the the mechanics of music and how they all work together, but there, there are things I know appeal to me. And I really love the communication of this game in terms of how it does that, you know, in terms of it teaches you where you are by sort of adding layers to the track, you know, and um, getting you into its rhythm in more than just following the beat. It's like, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's difficult for someone like me to get into to begin with, but given the time, it really does work wonderfully. You know, it's like, but yeah, you know, that's always a caveat for me. It's I'm always going to be like, I feel slightly envious <laughs> when I can't uh, experience it the way I want to experience it. Well, I'm not trying to rub it in, but you know, there was a weekend where I basically just played this for until I beat it. And it was the type of game where like I cranked my sound bar up and was just like <laughs> in the zone, euphoric, tearing through demons to the degree that my downstairs neighbor actually came over and was just like, Hey man, like be great if you could turn that down a little bit. And I was just <laughs> so in the zone. It took a couple of knocks for me to hear him, but it really is that type of game where it it really does utilize that aspect of any beat game that people yeah. enjoy, where it's like you just find yourself in this groove and this rhythm that you can't get out of. And pairing that with, you know, really fluid and, you know, people have said they weren't a fan of this aspect of uh, Doom Eternal, but that very sort of erratic movement style, the triple dashes and double jumps and all these things, for somebody like me, it probably is, a you know, compliments my ADHD brain where I'm just like moving around as quickly as possible while still trying to stay on beat and nailing a headshot with these dual revolvers, which I mean, there's a good amount of weapons in the game, but like once you find one that speaks to your style of play normally Mm. and then tying in the beat element, I mean, there's, there's nothing like it. And I mean that genuinely, like I haven't played anything like this before. And as far as first person shooters go this year, this was the most unique and the most rewarding in that aspect I found. Yeah, absolutely. I I can totally agree with that part. All right. But before we move on to your number seven pick, let's dive into our next award. What was your best atmosphere game of the year, Neil? So should I just do two again? I have a feeling we're going to do that for a number of them. Yeah. Uh, I originally only had one, but then I was like, um, so common theme, Norco will come up again here. Um, Again, for what is largely just static images with the odd motion bit here and there it still just conveys this proper sense of a place that doesn't exist you know um but you you can imagine how it would you know this whole you know deep south gone to ruin but in a sort of tech noir style works beautifully you know and you, you feel it in every interaction and in every piece of music and every screen they show of it this place is seedy and fucked up and it's uh, 
getting to that part is that it's the most Cronenberg-esque game in terms of atmosphere I've ever known. You know, and I think that not just David, but Brandon, you know, there's, it's probably more Brandon now thinking about it, you know, in terms of, um, having this technological side that, um, feels like an extension of what we are in now, you know, modern, you know, uh, jobs and, you know, the, the, the grift of it all. But, um, yeah, not to go too deep into it, but you can feel it so well that that, that sense of atmosphere and, uh, how decrepit this place is whilst having life in it that is basically the last dregs and remnants of what should be there. This is a place taken over by a corporation and basically mined to death, you know, and, all that are left are the people who can't leave you know, mm. and, and will do anything to make their living. You know, and it, it's a depressing atmosphere, you know, but it's effective as hell. You know, I find, um, the other one is the mortuary assistant, which I, I think is a very consistent atmosphere throughout, which, um, you know, if a game can give me a really good rainy night feeling and make me feel like I don't want to be in a place, then in horror anyway, then it's some um, fantastic work in my book. And I think early on, there is that aspect of that where it is just raining hard. You can go outside the building and go to your car and feel like you're sort of safe, but not. And you just, you really feel the sense of loneliness in the place once you are left to your own devices. Yeah. And I, I love that about it. You know, without there being any obvious threat to begin with, you know, and it not being like the usual examples you get in this where, you know, you are being chased around by the X, Y, or Z, or you've got to shoot X, Y, or Z. It really does just have this oppressive, unknown quantity that, yeah, just unnerves you. You know, and I think that's possibly the greatest strength of that game. You know, I think it is, it really does establish that atmosphere early on and then adds a bunch of stuff on top that makes you have to try and think of all these other things whilst keeping that that feeling in mind and i love that about it really does a great job but what about you yeah for my best atmosphere i'm gonna have to give it to scorn scorn was a game that you know was not even close to being on my top 10 for the year just because of you know what my experience with that game ended up being it was, however, a game that, you know, capitalized, it marketed and capitalized on the fact that it's going for that, you know, H.R. Geiger aesthetic and whatnot that we, uh, you know, love so dearly from mm-hmm. Alien and whatnot. And I thought that that game did such an amazing job of capturing that and displaying it in a way that felt like it was not just taking Geiger's artwork and making it an environment you could walk through. That was part of it, but more so it built upon that in some really interesting and organic ways. Yeah. I'm not going to go to bat for a lot of the puzzles that are in that game. I will go to bat for the fact that the puzzles themselves, at least, felt reflective of the world. They yeah. didn't feel like they were just like the normal puzzles that are kind of just shoehorned into a uh, puzzle game. They felt reflective of the world, which kept me in the world rather than ever really taking me out of it. Um, you know, I have a lot of reservations about that game at the end of the day. At the same time, though, I found that Scorn did the best job at capitalizing on a hostile environment, but still has that sort of 
disturbing dark horror uh, beauty to it, if you will. You know, there's yeah. segments where you're walking around outside. It looks like the best 80s album art, rock, like rock cover album art. Um, and then when you're inside, of course, there's this disgusting merger of bone and flesh and technology and whatnot that's very like Cronenberg and mm-hmm. Cronenbergian, uh, which I, you know, am a sucker for. Kind of, you just referenced the Cronenberg. So, yeah, yeah, we're suckers for that. And I think it's not a stretch to say that, you know, they capitalized on that aesthetic and that style in a really successful way, I thought. Um, you know, yeah. I'm not going to say the game overall was super successful, but I will say in that regard to crafting atmosphere, that was the one that stuck with me the most and I think was the most haunting. The other, you know, in atmosphere I'll say that I really appreciated was Elden Rings, right? Mm -hmm. I haven't played enough of it to even include it on my list, but I will say with the four to five hours I played, this was the type of game where I would get to an environment and I'd stand on, you know, a hilltop or whatever and just stare across the landscape much in the same way that I would back in the day when I was playing, you know, Oblivion and Exited the Sewers or in Fallout 3, you're standing on that cliff and just looking yes. out amongst the wasteland after leaving the vault. Um, and any game that's able to do that also has the benefit of the fact that it's got this gorgeous next-gen graphics backing it up and whatnot. Um, so that was a close second, I would say, just in terms of, mm. you know, crafting an atmosphere complemented by the score, which, you know, to Scorn's credit as well, has a score that complements the environment, which then just kind of engrosses me uh, even further into the world. So yeah, those were my two uh, best environments of the year. Good picks, good picks. But uh, let's dive into your seventh pick for Game of the Year. My seventh pick is Night at the Gates of Hell by Black Eyed Priest, a.k.a. Jordan King. This is one that's on my list. And oh, we will, so it's uh, taken this long. It's taken <laughs> this long. And we will be uh, returning to this one uh, in next week's episode. And there we go. So we, we shortened this episode by slightly <laughs> and probably made the next one much longer. So, uh, Jay, what's your number seven? My seventh pick is going to be Immortality. Which we'll go into next week. Back-to-back <laughs> <laughs> back efforts. Um, I think this episode could be ending quicker than we expected. <laughs> <laughs> I have been keeping a running list just to keep track of, oh, yeah, yes. we got to return to this. Yeah. Um, but I guess before then, we dive into our sixth pick. Let's do a quick recap of what we've covered so far for each of us. We'll do okay. our sixth pick. Hopefully we'll do our sixth pick. If not, we'll uh, we'll move some things around. But uh, we'll also, you know, go into our last category for the week. Yeah. Okay. So uh, my number ten was Elden Ring by From Software. My number ten was the Mortuary Assistant. My number nine was Mothman nineteen sixty six by LCB Game Studio. And my number nine was the Shopping List from Jordy Boy. My number eight was a Plague Tale Requiem from Asobo Studio. My number eight was Metal Hellsinger from The Outsiders. My number seven was Night of the Gates of Hell by Black Eyed Priest. And my number seven was Immortality from Half Mermaid and Sam Barlow. Okay. So, number six um, for me is Go Fly a Kite by Ditto Chosky. I got it right this time. um yes my my horror bites game of the year is indeed in my main game of the year list as well as well it should be because it is just the strangest weirdest funniest sharpest 15 minutes of game i have played all year 
Yeah. We've talked about length of games here, you know, and this is likely to be the shortest game I think we'll have on on either list. And that should tell you a lot about how impactful it is and how it has stuck with me throughout. Now, if you really want my longer thoughts on it, we've covered it twice already. So we we did it in the Horror Whites episode where where we reviewed it. I've written about it for Dread XP and I have obviously covered it last week when we were talking about it on Horror Bites Game of the Year episode. Spoilers if you hadn't listened to that, of course, now that I've given my Game of the Year away on that one. But all the same, it is a fantastic little thing that I really just am in awe of. Cannot wait for the developer's next game. The claymation brutalist thing going on, it has, I, I, a combination of things that I am fascinated by that work so well in what we're doing. And the commentary in it is sharper than many games bigger that are trying to you know, profess that they are sharp commentaries. You know, it is so smart. So I feel in awe and, you know, I feel small, you know, um, seeing someone come up with this on their own in such a small punchy format as this and go Jesus it makes you feel inferior you know to to see something like this being made like that fantastic so all I can say more I've said so much (laughs) (laughs) that's the thing I think that you know drama is easy comedy is hard and the fact that this game is able to not only be a poignant commentary very relatable poignant commentary on the current you know times we're all living through in Mm. more ways than one it's also hilarious, uh, you know, through and through. And the fact that you're able to take, as you said, that brutalist kind of claymation aspect, which kind of just looks like something that was the result of like an acid trip, but then actually have this real world connotation to it will yeah. also be entertaining, but also be kind of thought provoking in a way. And also being an example of a developer that, you know, is able to insert you into a world, fill it with weird and interesting people and have that, you know, that dialogue tree and those various options. And really it was one of those games where not just cause it was short, but I was, it was the type of thing where I was like, I want to press every single option. Cause I want every bit of dialogue that any weirdo yeah. has in this world. And truly no character is like the last. And it's a game that really does evolve on, you know, it's themes, not only the players, uh, you know, linear narrative of their own struggles, just filling a world with tons of weird freaks that have interesting things to say uh, is really an accomplishment in of itself. And it's one that uh, has me, has us both eager, eagerly awaiting the next title. Yeah. And I mean, I think the greatest credit I give it is that his, it has opened me up to games beyond it, you know, mm. um, you know, that have been bigger productions necessarily that have that sort of sense of, strangeness and weirdness um you know I, i've mentioned a game a couple of times already that i haven't talked about in terms of game of the year yet that in norco that um has a lot of the same vibes you know but on a longer scale and it's nice to see that that can be out there working on that scale you know it that is still very much more grounded than this you know but even that is you know just weird and fucked up in the way that i just you know, we've gone on about it so often, well, I have anyway, you know, about that sort of shit you watch at 2am, 
on the telly sort of thing, you know, back in your youth and how that kind of can impact you. And the best stuff for me this year has, you know, impacted me like that because it's been like, wow, you know, that this really does just get my very specific vibe. You know, not, not, not something that makes me feel comfy and nostalgic in the way that you would normally feel about stuff. You know, where it's like, ah, oh, this reminds me of when I was five years old and, I, you know, Christmas time and I was, you know, eating toast by the fire and I watched this thing and that's what it was like. No, it's like, this is the thing I watched at 2am when I didn't know what I was doing with my life. It's great. <laughs> I love it. That's the sort of stuff I want in games. And hip, hip, hooray to more stuff like this. Yeah. I mean, this was the game that early on in Horror Bites, it really did dispel any notion I had previously that it was like, well, why don't you just pick stuff that you think you might be interested in? That was why I initially picked this one for us mm. to cover is that I was like, I would never, ever pick anything that normally looks like this because I just assume like, whatever. I was like, yeah, it's probably got a joker here, but I don't know really how much I'm going to be, how much is going to be able to be taken from something that looks like this in a meaningful way. Yeah. And, you know, it was one of those situations where thankfully I couldn't have been more wrong. And this one was the title that really kind of opened up my mind to anything and everything of horror, right? I used to have yeah. sort of pre preconceived notions going into things and, you know, to a certain extent, everybody does, but it really did solidify the reality that you can't judge games based on how the thumbnail looks or even you know, specific subgenres in my dabbling, yeah. right? It is the type of thing that more often than not, you will be rewarded diving headfirst into something like this that doesn't check a ton of boxes for you right out the gate, perhaps. But if you trust in the fact that, you know, developers more often than not that are developing such a brief slice and such a singular and unique, you know, vision of something such as this, more often than not, there's going to be more surprises in store for uh, the player and whatnot. And I think that this is a fantastic pick and one that definitely uh, definitely shines strongest amongst a lot of our horror bites of the year. Yeah. Um, so with nails being bitten at this point to see if this is the end of the episode or if we have a little longer to go, what's your number six? My number six is going to be Vampire Survivors. And we're covering it next week. So. <laughs> but we still have one more category that we can cover. We do at least uh, have that. So yeah. <laughs> it was bound to happen at some point. You know, it's, uh, that's the main thing. But yes, um, one more category then. Yeah. I, think about it this way, right? It's that uh, we've got that last episode. We've got some, uh, some contributor aspects to that next yep. episode, which I won't spoil here. But it is the type of thing that, you know, we wanted to break up our coverage this year because we definitely uh i think last year we went on quite a long time and it's nice to have a little breathing room in between exploring our games of the year as well as some guests coming in and sharing yeah. a, a little bit of input uh right for the end of the years but our final category for the first half of our games of the year coverage is going to be goriest game what was the goriest game you played this year neil it was proteus yeah, there you go. We both, we both picked it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was no point picking a second one here. This was, you know, pixel perfect as it was. You know, it really did just go above and beyond in goal without making it be, you know, the be all and end all. You know, I think that's the key takeaway about it is you know, in a horror game, if you're going to go gory, yeah, there's usually, yeah, that's a selling point, you know, and 
I think recently of the Callisto protocol, you know, where there's this whole mm. thing about player deaths and oh, how grisly and all this. It's like, great, yeah. But, you know, it should really, you know, be part of the game that's in the background but really serves what you're doing. And, you know, yeah. Proteus isn't like an outright horror game, you know, but it's got a lot of those early, you know, 90s, you know, sort of FPS vibes with this Mortal Kombat level of gore. You know, it's like where it's like it stains your guns, it stains the walls, it stains everything. It just, it just splatters everywhere and it is just delightful. Yeah. You know, it makes the act of blowing things up and shooting things just into this delightfully early Peter Jackson-esque you know, cacophony of gore. And I just readily applaud that. You know, I, I think that it is just utterly charming. Uh, it may sound demented to anyone who's not into horror, but really, I honestly think there's a charm to being able to splatter that much digital blood around and make it funny and exciting and just entertaining. You know, and I think the big takeaway there is that it's like, because you're not given any reason to care about the people you're doing it to, because they're not really people, they're just things. And yeah, it works for it. So, you know, um, if I'm profile for being a psychopath for saying that, be it as it may be, but um, I, 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 I believe that's um, a real quality of Proteus. If anybody has any difficulty understanding why this game has merit in the way that you just spoke to, <laughs> they're probably listening to the wrong podcast because <laughs> this game is 1000%, you know, our jam in that regard, right? Mm. It's not just that you're seeing a level of gore that was never in 16-bit games from that era, right? There were shades of it here or there, right? Obviously, yeah. Doom, Blood, and so forth. But this game just ratchets it up to like 120% um, in the best way possible, right? And I think that it's not just that it's included, it's that it complements the combat in this game. Yeah. Like I spoke earlier about the soundtrack. The soundtrack kicks in just at the right moment. It builds and builds and builds to the degree that when I open up a room and there's you know 20 zombies or whatever – and I've got the chain gun and I just start ripping through them and the score kicks in and yeah. the screen is quite literally, you know, my view is completely obscured by just gallons of, you know, blood and there's nothing but giblets everywhere. It makes for this really, really meat grinder satisfying approach to combat that any of the influences that this game is drawing inspiration from probably wishes that they could have done back in the day, but it just wasn't feasible yeah. or, you know, you couldn't get it past a rating board at that time. Um, and I think that this game's ability to capitalize on nostalgia in a way that's familiar but is elevating the experience is what is so satisfying about it. Yeah. And, you know, I, yeah, you know, talking about gore in games and things like that and violence in games, it's one thing to include it. And it's most of the time it's a negative, I find, right? You know, we've taken, uh, and I know some of our uh, former guests' ears are burning with our mentioning it, but like, a game like Outlast, the original one, where it's like you walk into a room and there's a dozen decapitated corpses. I don't find that to be interesting. I don't find that to be a merit of the game in the sense of like, look how demented this is, all of the bodies and gore and stuff, because mm -hmm. it doesn't really complement anything other than being this, you know, thinly veiled set dressing. 
Whereas something like Proteus, it really does put you in the boots of this, you know, this Marine going through hell, essentially, and chewing through hordes of enemies with, you know, this crazy array of weapons. And, you know, the way that you channel that feeling of empowerment from those weapons and chewing through enemies, yeah, you're going to get pretty dirty doing that. (laughs) And the fact that, you know, it actually obscures your view, but the game gives you the tools to... I guess it gives you the tools of destruction that even if your vision is obscured, which generally speaking, you never want to happen in a game. No. At the same time, you're so confident in your abilities and your character is strong enough to the degree that you can live after having your view obscured for about five minutes or five yeah. seconds, 10 seconds, something like that. Um, and yeah, you know, in the moment, it makes you feel like this superpowered badass, which uh, I think we can all appreciate on some level. Oh, absolutely. And I think... To me, you know, it comes with a certain level of nostalgia that I like, which is for Duke Nukem 3D, which, you know, in itself was, it had some gory bits, you know, which are tamed by this comparison, but a crudeness. Um, but a sophistication underneath that really sells you on it more than it just being a gimmick, you know, and I like that. You know, I think that's where it is a, spiritual successor more to that game than anything else in that it it's a smarter game than you would expect for a game that really loves to just battle the strawberry jam about you know it really is just it it knows what it's doing and i like that depth to your gore that's the way to be about these things make it the side dish or the dessert but do not make it the main meal because you will not you will not (laughs) feel satisfied you know with that alone you know it's just not enough so yeah great stuff Proteus's gore top notch yeah that's a a fantastic way to put it yeah let it be this cherry on top if you will rather than being that main attraction because you're not gonna be able to sustain that being the number one feature of your game for more than what an hour or something and the fact that (laughs) the game is able to excel in multiple ways and this just happens to be something that complements them rather than being the main draw uh, is why, you know, Proteus is I'm confident in saying one of the best first person shooters of the year uh, for multiple reasons. Granted, you know, it was uh, two of our <laughs> basically two of our uh, nominations for special side categories. Um, and yeah, definitely a, a tremendous game. And I'm glad we got to talk about it in uh, a little more depth. Absolutely. So you know, that's the end of this week's um, edition. We will come back for the top five which you know some of now yeah. uh, by, by default <laughs> a little but, preview yeah a little preview but what order are they in that's yeah. the question um, <laughs> um hopefully there are still some surprises uh, oh, in there absolutely. and you know obviously as we said we'll have other bits and pieces there we will go through our honorable mentions which are, there are many you know, no, <laughs> I'm looking at the list I had to of stuff I cut out before, like minutes before this episode, yeah. even, and just thinking, I have to talk about those things. <laughs> I, I must, I must. You, know, you, you will be inundated with more video game stuff next week. There's no doubt about that. And yeah, that, that will uh, send us off for the year nicely, I think. Yeah, still lots to discuss in our uh, end of the year coverage. And uh, I definitely look forward to sharing some thoughts from, uh, you know, guests that we had throughout the year about their experiences. Because while, you know, we're, uh, of course, you know, really looking forward to diving more into our personal picks and sharing them and celebrating horror at the same time, you know, 
genre is nothing without a variety of voices getting to lend their input on games. And, you know, we talk about variety in games, variety of opinions and outlooks on mm. things is just as important. And so really excited to share those and also, you know, to see the order and a few surprises along the way, I promise. There's a few that uh, hopefully you won't be able to guess on my uh, bottom half of my list, but Regardless, it's going to be very exciting to finally dive into that next week. But uh, as always, Neil, it is a pleasure chatting horror with you for Safe Room. Until part two. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. If you enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod for show updates. You can also join our Discord channel, Safe Room Podcast, to chat with us and other horror fans about the genre we all love. You can also drop us an email over at saferoompod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next Monday for the second part of our Game of the Year coverage and our final episode of 2022.